This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. March has arrived, Hardwood Knox listeners, and we are only weeks away from the big tournament. Yes, that tournament. Make sure to head to betonline.ag and open an account today to get in on their $100,000 bracket March Madness Contest, starting March 15th. That's right. I said $100,000 and March 15th. You don't need to be hardcore to get in on the action. And with multiple entries available, it's this season's best chance to cash in. And remember, the NBA and XFL are still going strong. So whatever your passion is, BetOnline is the place to be for all your betting needs. Visit our good friends and exclusive partner, BetOnline, to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account and make sure to use that promo code Blue wire, all one word for your 50% sign up bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. What is poppin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with my super duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times awesome. Fantabulous, spectaculario. Cannot believe that the Knicks kicked out Spike Lee or alienated him from their fan base or whatever the hell that they did. Co-host Andrew D. Bailey. Oh wait, that's actually me. Um, before we get started, the usual housekeeping notes. Please, please, pretty please, continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Hardwood Knox on iTunes. We can also be found wherever else you are consuming your podcast, but iTunes is still the best way to let us know that you're out there, that you're listening. It really helps out the podcast. Let those written reviews come in. We'll take constructive criticism as well. We're reading all of them. Definitely rate us um, and subscribe. Make sure you're downloading all of our episodes. If you've done all those things, Word of mouth references, retweeting our Twitter promos, all of that good stuff can be a big help. So we ask that you continue to do that. Follow us on YouTube. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We'll come right up. Subscribe, like all our videos. Our full-length podcast will always be up there. Follow Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. You can find Andy on Twitter, at Andrew D. Bailey. I am at Dan Favalli, F-A-V. A-L-E. And as always, it's a big help if you follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network on Twitter too, at Blue Wire Pods. Shout out, as always, to this week's sponsor, betonline.ag. They make this podcast possible with all the things that they do. So you just heard from them in the pre roll. Make sure to use the promo code Blue Wire, all one word, and set yourself up an account for a 50% welcome bonus. Andy, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, Played ball for the second time this week, which is pretty unusual for me, and I feel less sore today than I did after the first time. So I'm I'm doing well. So basically, you're in peak condition, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I uh, Tuesday, the first time I played, I had a fairly open lane to the rim. Thought for half a second, I'm going to try to dunk this. Oh boy! <laughs> Went for it. Um, 
like kind of half went for it, didn't dunk it. I, you know, I got about halfway there and thought, nah. And then as soon as I landed, I I don't know if I meant to say this audibly or loudly, but I was like, wow, that hurt. And everyone just <laughs> started laughing at me. <laughs> that's spectacular. Yeah, I run into that same problem. Was, or that day. I run into that same problem all the time, trying to decide whether or not to dunk. That's, you know, being about 5'11", 6 foot, that's, that's just a problem I run into on the daily. Well, hey, it means you've got some some great bounce in you. Yeah, I actually have like a negative vertical. <laughs> you know what I will say? I played basketball for the first time since fucking up my shoulder over the summer. This was like in February. It was randomly warm in New York, and so we played outside. And it just doesn't feel the same. Like, and I've I've been getting super Your shoulder. Yeah, like playing basketball with it. I've been getting super cranky because going to the gym. Like it's just not as strong and I still feel this sort of constant throbbing. So I've been, I've been a very cranky old man about this. Like, I feel like now I just have these injuries. Like it's just, Oh, you you dislocated your shoulder and you just never fully recovered. Was it a dislocation? Oh yeah. It was, uh, it was gross too. I almost threw up when I saw it in the mirror. It was spectacular. One of my, um, we're getting way off track now, but one of my, personal injury clients got hit by a Domino's driver and it tore his labrum. Um, and he used to love like working out and all that stuff. It feels so bad for him. He's just like, can't do all these things that he used to love to do. The shoulder turns out it's pretty important. Yeah. Right. It hurt to get like out of the car for a little bit. Like you just oh, don't realize man. like what pressure you put on it. Um, so awful. we've now turned this into a medical podcast. Slash <laughs> hashtag getting old podcast, uh, actual basketball things. Are, are happening for people who can dunk on or more more regularly. Let's start with the Knicks in all their Knicksian glory. Uh, since we last recorded, they have the, I, I don't know what you would even call it. They had a thing with Spike Lee <laughs> where it looks like they didn't let him in his usual entrance. There have been some people that said he knew they wouldn't let him in, but he tried to go anyway. Uh, however, the the video did not he did not really support them. Uh, just because he was sort of getting into a confrontation with security and then they basically come out with a statement that everything's fine and he talked to James Dolan and they're cool. Then Spike Lee goes on first take and just puts them on blast saying it never happened. The Knicks respond because this is how NBA teams respond to these things by uh, tweeting that Spike Lee's account is false and they use pictures to prove it. There is a picture of him on there public relations Twitter account shaking hands with uh, James Dolan. That is this. We have some other stuff to talk about with the Knicks, but that is the single stupidest, pettiest tweet that the Knicks PR account has ever sent out. I think it's only, they've had some doozies, but I think it's probably pettier than, do you remember the whole, we didn't try to sign Richard Jefferson in the summer of 2017 or whatever it was. Yeah. This organization is such a fucking crap show. I don't, I just don't understand it. And uh, apparently they kicked out more fans for chanting sell the team in Madison Square Garden in the game that Spike Lee didn't show up to, which just so happened to be their lowest attended home game, I think in 13 years it was. Was it true that they were like stopping people um, in the halls during that game and, and asking them if they were the ones chanting? That was what, some of the stuff that was going around like even during the game and on on social media so it's just that's true holy cow they're like james dolan is a clown it really is just like how it always gets worse just when you think it's like 
not that this surprises you, but just when you think that it can't really get worse or that the Knicks can't be even more of a caricature of an actual NBA team, they get more cartoony. They're they're awful. And then you have Charles Oakley coming out uh, and talking about how it's a plantation mentality over there. They can't even have good relationships with former players, former fan favorites. It just, they really, we need to relegate them or something. Yeah. Um, And most of these, I mean, the vast majority of these things should not, it's, it's the Knicks who make it into a big deal. Um, Like on this, on the Spike Lee thing, I actually, when I first heard the story, I thought, well, he's not really blameless either. I mean, poor Spike Lee has to go through the VIP door instead of the, employee door but it seems like it was the knicks who just kept escalating that and kept looking dumber and dumber and uh you know same thing with everything else you just mentioned there if they would just let this stupid stuff die out because for the most part it's they're not significant things um i mean they they obviously get significant thing wrong things wrong a lot of times too but a lot of these recent blunders are just like if you would have just let that lie and not worried about it so much it probably would have just blown over pretty quickly but they always have to sort of exacerbate the situation and you would think somebody at some point would be like hey guys let's just stop let's just try and be a basketball team for a little bit um that that never seems to cross their mind they always have to make it worse right it's look even if spike lee was told beforehand or if you didn't want him coming through that entrance they were having to try. They were trying to get him to leave the arena and come back in, even though his ticket yeah, was already scanned. Like, why? Why couldn't it be? Hey, you need to come through the VIP entrance next time. And then, if that's what actually happened, where he tries to come back through the same entrance, his old entrance, maybe that's when you do something a little bit more. Like, maybe that's when it's allowed to become more animated, or you can take a more hardline stance. And I know a lot of people were thinking oh, why should Spike Lee get special treatment as like this direct outreach from the team to let him know that his entrance needs to change or he can't go through that entrance and that he now needs to go through the VIP entrance, that he's not above like the new rules. It's Spike Lee. He's like your fan icon. He's an icon, yeah. And all the money he's dropped on tickets over the years, it's just, you know, he can warrant like the special treatment for that so there was just no need for it and it's i just the the things that they continue to put on that public relations account even do you remember that post about charles oakley when he was thrown out of madison square garden where they just they ended it with we hope he gets the helps he need just implying (laughs) that he had all these problems that tweet is still up there by the way the other day it is it is just it's wild to me yeah i don't I don't know. Is anybody in their class in terms of like the most ridiculously run organization in the league now? I feel like the Kings have stabilized quite a bit this year, even though they, you know, they still have their issues. Um, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's even close to the Knicks right now. At least it seems for the Kings at this point, like many of their issues are purely basketball operations, yeah. and so yeah. much stuff with the Knicks is just so superfluous. They've got all of it. Um, <laughs> Basketball issues, off-court issues. I mean, they've got it all in spades. And it's I, – I don't know what is ever going to change there, but Leon Rose, the new team president, released a statement. So now the Knicks are making somehow their front office executives even less accessible than usual because he doesn't 
have a press conference and you can get into whether, oh, that's actually smart. They're not going to go through pomp and circumstance. They just don't talk to the media. And then Mike Miller, uh, the interim head coach, left to answer the questions about Spike Lee. But it was Leon Rose. The hiring was made official the day that Spike Lee had the issue getting into Madison's oh. garden. And his statement was literally just a load of nothing. It was just it, – it, it described nothing. It, it proved nothing. It, so his, what he does will be interesting to monitor. And speaking of which, Frank Isola of The Athletic reported on Thursday that – this is a direct quote from his tweet. The Knicks, according to NBA sources, have been gathering intel on all-star Chris Paul and could make a run at him this summer. So – he was also once represented by Leon Rose. That needs to be thrown in there as well. I think a lot of just former Rose clients are going to be linked to the Knicks yeah. at this point, and maybe Mello this season too, who uh, <laughs> who who is going to be a free agent. This is Man, also from Mello and Chris Paul this summer. Yeah, those are look ten years after Chris Paul toasts to teaming yeah. teaming up with Mello at at Mello's wedding. The Knicks will make it happen a decade after. Uh, this is also from Ian Begley of SNNY. He basically confirmed Isola's report, saying some members of the organization feel that Paul would provide strong leadership for their young group and help instill a winning culture to New York. I'm curious as to what your impression is of the Knicks. Let's just assume that they do make a run at Chris Paul. What is your what is your reaction to them doing that? Okay, for one <laughs> So I think it's true that he probably goes further towards instilling a good culture than anyone they've had in, I don't even know how long. Um, and he's been really, really good this year. I mean, I, I think basically like a top 10 to 15 player all season long, what he's done for Shea Gildas Alexander, I think has been huge. The Thunder were a playoff lock as early as, you know, it feels like a couple months ago um, when a lot of people thought they might miss the postseason. So he, he's been phenomenal. But one of my first thoughts was, wouldn't it just be so Knicks if, <laughs> if Chris Paul like completely outperformed expectations this year and then had the fall off the cliff that some people were expecting as soon as the Knicks signed him? And it's, it's like not out of the realm of possibility either. I, I still think that contract, even though Chris Paul has been phenomenal this season, um, has very strong potential to go, uh, for lack of a better term, belly up over the next couple of years, or at least by the last year. Um, two years, $85.6 million. That's a lot how, of money. How much left? Two years? And $85.6 million. Yeah, it's a ton. Um, but I, I actually don't hate this for the Knicks. I think even if he, even if he's playing like 45, 50 games in the last year. Um, just having him there, I, I think, brings more stability than they've had in many, many years. Um, and if if he can hang on, let's say by the last year of the contract, he's like 85% of what he is now. Maybe that's still a decent investment because they're not going to be good for the next couple of years anyway. Um, so I'm not like, I don't really feel super strongly one way or the other about it. I, I see how it could go pretty badly if if he does finally fall off the cliff as i was saying earlier but i also think there might be uh some truth to what they're saying that he could actually help in more ways than just you know on the basketball court 
I I think I mostly agree. It's probably not as ridiculous a notion as it sounds because if you trust that Chris Paul is going to be fine playing for a non-contender for the next two years, you can stomach the money that he has he has left on his deal because maybe it prevents you from doing something more slapdash, more reckless yeah. in free agency. The main issue for me is first and foremost, what are you giving up to get him? Is this you know a scenario yeah, if it's just cap space and Julius Randle, then fine. If that's what's happening, I, because I don't, they would need to get rid of basically everybody to take Paul's contract into cap space next year. That's all the non-guaranteed contracts, which I think, you know, with Reggie Bullock and Alfred Payton, those would probably be two guys. I would assume that they want back. Although you don't really need Alfred Payton if you're going to have Chris Paul. So if it's just cap space, they can take Chris Paul into cap space. If they waive uh, most of their, you know, get rid of Bobby Portis, who has a team option. Uh, then you have these partial 1 million guarantees for Peyton, Ellington, and Gibson. So if you get rid of those three guys, you'll have the cap space to just take on Chris Paul's contract, just flat out. Is Oklahoma City doing that? Or would they even be interested in just taking back Julius Randle as the primary compensation? I, I highly doubt it. So what are you giving up? Some people would be okay with it being a Frank Nielakina or a Kevin Knox. I, I'm probably not. If it's Dennis Smith, fine. If th- That's probably something I'd be willing to entertain if I'm the Knicks just because he's quite literally turned into the NBA's least efficient scorer this year. So the opportunity cost is one that I'm curious about. And then two, does having Chris Paul instill the organization with this sense of immediacy that has come back to bite them so many times before? They're always looking for this quick fix. And I, I find it very hard to believe Chris Paul's a fantastic player. It seems like he's taken well in Oklahoma city uh, to Shea Gilgis Alexander, but he's also surrounded by a bunch of other veterans who are, who are playing really well. If you look at Danilo Gallinari, Dennis Schroeder's having a career year. Uh, Steven Adams is just a, a pro's pro. So I, I just don't, I, I do think that there's a chance the fit ends up being detrimental to the Knicks' future. And that's not even talking about what you said. Could his contract end up going belly up? Because he's going to be 35 in May. Uh, that the, These next two years, they can turn pretty quickly in a vacuum just for him. But I'm more worried about what the acquisition of Chris Paul would say about, one, what the Knicks gave up, and two, how they plan to flesh out the team over these next two years. Yeah, those are all really great points. I think at this point, there there was a little bit there, and maybe it was before the season even started, where people were wondering if OKC might even have to give up some sweeteners to get rid of Chris Paul. That's probably out. I mean, I'm, I'm right. sure that possibility has, has um, flown the coop, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, they'd have to be <laughs> they'd have to be careful about what they give up. But I, I who on the Knicks? or who among the Knicks young core are you like relatively confident in right now? There's really only RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson, RJ Barrett. And then I'm just confident that Frank, Frank Nielakina is going to be a career difference maker and continue to be a career difference maker. I don't think the Knicks see it. So that's probably, that's probably pointless. Then the, the Knicks probably look at everyone on their roster, except Barrett and Robinson as expendable, which is sort of fair. But I do think the context changes a little bit when you're talking about, acquiring a 35 year old who makes so much money yeah if it's look if it involves giving up a first round pick that's no way no way and then 
the other thing to think about is if Giannis Antetokounmpo signs his Supermax extension, I wonder if that, I don't say creates a bidding war for Chris Paul, but does a team like the Miami Heat get a little more aggressive about trying to acquire him? And I could just see the scenario where the Heat show preliminary interest and then that just like forces the Knicks to bid against themselves like they did in the Carmelo Anthony yeah, trade in I can 2011. See that. So it's, and I, I guess what helps them is I can't imagine another team other than the Miami Heat that might, you know, if Giannis Tentacubo signs the Supermax, they look at the 2021 20, free agency class and are like, uh, you know, we have cap space this summer so we could use it and then put together a package for, for Chris Paul and Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Paul George, Kawhi. They're all probably staying put. That's really the only team that I could see taking that path. And so my actual question to you is, if you are the Thunder, what is it? You don't have to attach anything into a Chris Paul trade, but are you willing to trade him just to get off that money at this point? Or are you looking for at least a smaller time asset in return by now? I think at this point, I'd be hoping for some kind of an asset because what's what's really the harm in running it back next season? I guess they probably won't have Daniel Gallinari um, I, unless I, I guess they'll have his bird rights. So maybe they sign him with the intent to maybe trade him down the line. Um, That'd be my guess. I mean, maybe they sign and trade him too, so he really does leave over the summer. But my guess is that they're involved in his future yeah. somehow. And uh, this is a I, – I was looking at this for some article I was writing weeks ago. I, I think this fan base, since the team moved to OKC, has had two seasons in which they didn't get to see the playoffs. Um, so I think there's value in being one of those, you know, stable organizations who makes the playoffs every year, even, even when they had to trade both of their superstars this summer, they still made the playoffs. Um, so I think there's, there's some value in just saying, okay, we're, we're not going to get anything of value for Chris Paul this summer. Fine. We'll just go to the playoffs again next year. Um, so I, yeah, I think at this point they'd probably be looking for at least a little bit of something. I don't know. What do you think? I'd probably agree with you. And I also agree that it's it's good. It's definitely not harmful to run it back and make the playoffs next year. If only because I, I know that they probably at some point want to have a higher draft pick than they'll be getting by being on this playoff treadmill. At the same time, when you look at next year specifically, the chances of them moving Schroeder and Steven Adams and Chris Paul, it's just sort of slim to none. And so you have to believe they're going to still have at least two of those guys. That might make it a little bit more difficult to bottom out. And if you end up bringing back Danilo Gallinari anyway, it's, you know, maybe you have that inflection point after next season when Schroeder and Adams are off the books. Maybe you've traded Gallo by them if you don't sign and trade him this summer. That's maybe when you look at, oh, we could give away Chris Paul for nothing because we're ready to bottom out or something like that. Or maybe they just never even need to bottom out because Shea Gilgis-Alexander is so good and they – they pick yeah. up prospects late in the draft. So I'm, I'm with you on, on both fronts there. I would think... And they also... Sorry, one more thing. They also have how many incoming picks right now? At uh, least $2 trillion. <laughs> So there are ways, I think, to maybe package a pick here and there, move up in the draft. I, I don't... You know, they've already got a really, really deep stockpile. So I don't think they necessarily have to bottom out. I mean, it, it helps if you're getting top five, top ten picks in the lottery... Um, but they've already got a ton coming their way that they can use creatively. No, you're absolutely. I mean, they could go, what if they just go the other way? And so they run it back and then they decide to make a play for Bradley Beal. If he comes yeah. on the trade market, and then you're like, Hey, we got Chris Paul, we have Bradley Beal. 
Shea Gilgis Alexander, we're fine. And I, I, I'm, I'm just very curious to see what the asking price or the return they get should they actually move Chris Paul winds up being. I would think, I would think they're able to get something. They're certainly not going to have to attach anything. I don't think they need to take back a crummy contract, maybe an expiring deal just to help make, you know, or a combination of expiring deals to help make the money work. But I would think they get back. It would. I don't. I don't know if it'll be a first round pick, but I would think they get a young player. Maybe not this super high end guy, but that they get a young player. So if if they end up negotiating with the Knicks, I would think that deal ends with New York giving up a a Kevin Knox or a Frank Nealakina at the very least. I'd be fine with either of those. I think I'm. I'm a little higher on Nealakina than Knox. Not as high as you, but yeah. I don't know how great the optics are that if you're. That if if you trade Kevin Knox and then he ends up doing really well in Oklahoma yeah. City and you gave up on him after two years and and basically not really giving him a chance this season, it would be very Knicks. Speaking of not the Knicks, though, Stephen Curry is back uh, in his day in his return after I think he was gone for like a hundred and forty something days is how I uh, is how I calculate it. But it was the for- most. The most cautious timeline for that injury in the history of that injury. Right. He'd only made four appearances before then. So he played a little over 27 minutes. Uh, the Warriors lost the Raptors by eight. Curry was a minus 13, six of 16 from the floor, three of 12 from three, seven assists, only one turnover though. I thought, I don't know if you watched the game. I did. I thought he looked really good and just the the things that he can do for his teammates on offense, even when those teammates are not what did Steve Kerr say? Security blankets for yeah, Stephen Curry? Yeah, that was so weird. That was a, the, that might be a conversation to have. Is why did the, it seems like internally the Warriors underappreciate Steph, and I don't know that I necessarily understand that. But for this game specifically, I thought he looked just good. The, the vision is still there. You know, Maybe uh, there were a couple times where he fell on the floor where my heart sort of stopped, I think because I missed watching him so much, and the Warriors are – on national TV way too often. And if he's not on the court, they're just unwatchable at this point. But I mean, look, he was spending time alongside, not just, you know, Andrew Wiggins and Damian Lee, who had a rough end to the game, but had a good game overall. You know, you have like Juan Toscano Anderson on the court, Uh, Michael Mulder, uh, Dragan Bender. Like these are guys he's never, he probably doesn't even know their names. And so I think there's an element of a learning curve to that. You saw that a lot of the guys struggled to get the ball to him in certain spots. I just thought that he he was moving well. I'm assuming his shot will come around. I, he didn't say anything about being too uncomfortable taking those attempts following that broken hand. I, it was just good to see Stephen Curry back on the basketball court. I totally agree. Um, like I said, I played ball last night, so I missed the first half of that game, but I did see the second half, and he, he – Fortunately, it was a hand injury, and so you you don't expect a long um, time looking like himself moving around the floor. So that's he, he looked like himself is what I'm trying to say. I'm sure it'll take a little time for him to get used to shooting again, just because missing that many games, I, there's there's going to be an adjustment period there. Um, here's what I'm most worried about for the Warriors for the rest of the season, though. Stephen Curry's never had a season in which he shot less than forty percent from three. Oh boy, what is he at right now? Twenty four and a half percent. Uh, that's. Go- I mean, he has. He's, he's only twelve of forty nine, so he's going to have like two really good games and probably jump up over it. But um, yeah, I think 
you know, the the Warriors are at least mildly watchable now. Where like I, I agree with you before that, they it was awful. And it's like the nightmare scenario for the NBA to schedule that many Warriors games on national TV and then have them turn into literally a G League team for the most part. Um and I think they've got a bunch coming up still too. So they're probably thinking, oh thank goodness Curry's finally back because maybe a few people will actually tune into these games. Um and yeah, it, it, it's certainly going to make me want to watch him a lot more than I than I did a couple weeks ago. He is shooting sixty three point six percent from two, so maybe he'll shoot a career high inside the arc and a career yeah. low outside. The arc. Yeah, I did see some people were in my mentions yesterday saying, "Why would the Warriors bring Curry back at this point? All he's going to do is hurt their lottery stat- stock." I think. Look, not really. Yeah, the bottom three teams have the same odds anyway, and there's not a appreciable drop off should the Warriors end up being fourth or fifth or, or something like that right now. They also yeah. have uh, a three game hold on the worst record in the NBA. Uh, that's going to help them, and they're not in any imminent danger of dropping out of the league's bottom three. And so I don't think that he, uh, they have a, the Knicks are six losses uh, better than them right now. Yeah, so that's not. That's a pretty good question. The Knicks have the fourth worst record in the league right now, so that that doesn't bother me. It's and it, look, if he, you can't say it's oh, protect him so he doesn't get injured. It would obviously suck if something happened in a lost season. But you can't just not. You can't get to a point where you're just not playing your best player if he's healthy yeah. enough to play. I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Kerr. Um, but we, we always people always bring up that question like. Why play so-and-so if you might get hurt? Well, why ever play basketball anywhere at any time? Because you could always get hurt. Um, it, he, he's an NBA basketball player. He's under contract to play. It's it's fine to put him out there and play basketball. The, the broken hand was a freak injury. It happens to people all the time. Right, and this isn't a Kevin Durant situation where it was pretty clearly a gray area at best yeah. on whether he should yeah. play or not. The injury is not that fresh or that that bad, I guess you would call it. So obviously he ruptured his Achilles after the fact, but he was definitely on more shaky ground than Steph is after missing basically the entire regular yeah. season so far. Like if he was, if, if Curry was dealing with like a nagging knee injury, that's a completely different question. If, if it's something that could be aggravated or could lead to another injury, then yeah, those takes make sense. But it's a broken hand that he's already probably gotten a couple more months than most players would have gotten. So I think it's more than fine to bring him back now. They're they're in no uh, serious danger of losing out on their lottery odds. No, I'm not worried about that. And it's it's just good to know that they're more watchable because the Raptors, the end of the game was actually fun. It came down to a point where uh, the Warriors had possession. They had a chance to uh, make it a one-possession game. Uh, what was it? Damian Lee missed both free throws, and then they got the offensive rebound. He missed a wide-open three. Uh, and then they got the rebound again, and he lost the ball and had a foul. So it was just, it was actually entertaining, which their games have been a little bit short on of the ones that I've, and I say a little bit, it's mostly sarcastic. They've very, very, very short. Yeah, they've lacked, they've lacked a lot of drama. The Warriors will not be headed back to the finals. Uh, uh, Audible too, and he just texted me for an I Audible. texted you, yeah. Uh, we were going to talk about finals matchups, but he wants to talk about Luka Doncic and Zion Williamson. Surprise, surprise. We may have to, uh, I think we may have to save the finals matchups for another podcast because I'm already running a little bit short on time. Um, you and I participated in a roundtable 
this week about the Luca and Zion question. We both came down on the side of Luca, which I actually felt was a fairly obvious answer. I don't know if you did too. Um, it, what's the argument for Zion? I think a lot of it depends on first, wh- what is he going to be on offense outside this season? Because he looks like someone who's eventually going to to lead a bunch of fast breaks. Maybe he can run some pick and roll in the half court. We saw at the end of the Mavericks Pelicans game where he can just get the ball uh, from, you know, it's basically the top of the arc and he can put his head down, drive to the basket. So he can create for himself, but how much of his role is actually going to include that because it limits his influence over the offense, in my opinion, if he's just expected to, to score within the flow and, and in transition, it's not, that's not a bad thing, but I do think you have to default to primary shot creators, uh, not just the yeah. guys who are hitting those unassisted threes, but the ones who are table setting for everybody else. And I don't know that Zion Williamson is ever going to expect it to be. He de- I definitely don't think he'll ever be the primary playmaker, but will he even be like the guy who's second on his team responsible for doing that? And then if you want him to be ahead of Doncic, I think you really need to believe that he's going to turn into an all NBA defender. I'm just, yeah. I'm not sure if he gets there. It's just, it's really tough to envision when, when guys are rookies, he can really just jump out of out of the building when he's contesting shots at the rim. He's super quick. He does look like he's sort of out of position a lot when he's off the ball. He's not going to get overpowered if he has to go up against bigs in the short stints that the Pelicans have played with him at center. They've actually just steamrolled opponents. Those are all good signs. But I, again, I think I have to just default to the person who is always, in my mind, going to have more influence over his team's offense. Yeah, that's where I came down to. Um, I think everything you mentioned about Zion is true, but they're, they're sort of question marks. Whereas we are, I think we already know uh, what Luka, like what Luka Doncic is doing right now, what we're seeing is already MVP level type stuff. He's not going to win the MVP this year, obviously, but in a lot of seasons, what he's doing right now would be an MVP Season, So we already know we're going to get that. Um, he is the uh, unquestioned offensive hub of the Mavericks and not just the offensive hub of the Mavericks, the offensive hub of the team that is scoring more points per hundred possessions than any team in NBA history. Um, now, I, I need to do a little research and figure out where this team ranks in terms of like offensive rating relative to the league average. I assume it's still very, very high. Um, but the fact that this guy's now, 21 years old, I think he just turned 21, and he's engineering an offense that good. Um, it's just ridiculous. And there's still another level for him to get to. I, I don't think he's going to be a career 30 or 31% three-point shooter. I, I think he's eventually going to you know, start making more of those step backs. Um, and even if he gets to like a league average three-point shooter, that's a huge deal. Um, so there's, just, there's a lot more certainty with Luka. The other one other thing about the playmaking part of this is right now, and this this could change over the course of Zion's career, um, but Luca has only had about twenty percent of his field goals assisted this season, whereas Zion's had about eighty percent. So he's just he's more dependent on his teammates than Luca is right now. It, it's the inverse with Luca; his teammates are dependent on him. Um, the other sort of elephant in the room on the Zion discussion, and I almost hate talking about it because i i don't want to like put it out in the ether um 
but there is at least a slight worry about health with him. I think a lot of the discussion um, about his weight is overblown, especially during that first game when it's like all they were talking about. Um, he he clearly is a, a phenomenal athlete. I don't think you get as high off the ground as he does or run as fast from point A to point B as he does while being um, horribly overweight. But I've also never seen anyone that size get that high off the floor. And so I, I think it's natural for me to worry sometimes, how is this landing going to be? I mean, you, you mentioned holding your breath. Um, was it with, I can't even remember who you're talking about. Holding your breath when somebody leaves the floor. That's kind of how Stephen I am. Curry with, when he hit the floor in his return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of how I am with like half of Zion's plays, just because it's really unnatural to me. I mean, when you're that high off the ground, you're, you weigh that much and there's, you know, that many bodies around you, there's always a chance of landing on somebody else's foot. Um, just, just land, landing awkwardly in general. It's just a little bit scary. And I think, I, I think he's going to be fine. I mean, he, he hasn't shown anything to me that, that says that, yeah, he's going to get injured. Um, I don't think it's like a Greg Oden situation, but I think there's just a little bit of, a little bit more worry, I should say, than there is with Luca. Even though he's missed a bunch of time with injuries too this season, it just seems like those are like little. Um, you, you can know, never tell whether it's, you can never tell with him. I, I mean, he's missed some. He's strung together some consecutive misses. Uh, there was in February he had the the right ankle issue, but he has. If you look at his injury history, he just has like a bunch of different things listed on his report, and it makes you wonder just how much of it is uh, load management. Because now he's you know he missed time last year too because of the right ankle. So maybe, and he's had some hip, right knee issues, right thigh issues, just a ton of stuff on the right side of his body. And so it, that does make you wonder, but I agree that the the concerns for Zion there when it comes to health are, are certainly more se- severe if you even want to go as far as to use that word. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it was a fairly easy call for me to go with, with Luca on that. Um, Do you know what this question sort of parallels a little bit? There are two different players, but I, I look at it this way. If you were going to start a team in any given year from scratch, I'm not talking about the next five years of their career because then age comes into play, but would you rather have James Harden or Anthony Davis? And I think the answer pretty clearly there is James Harden. Anthony Davis is such yeah. a difference maker on defense. He can play within the flow of an offense. He he has the ability to create his own shot, but he can't lead in offense on his own just because he doesn't yeah. have, he's not, he's not supposed to be that type of table setter that James Harden is. And, and Harden is going to inherently bend defenses differently because he has that step back, that ability to score in isolation again and again and again, and, and the vision of, of a guard. And so it's just, it's, it's such a bizarre, I think the real compliment to Zion is that this is a discussion and he hasn't even played 20 games into his NBA career. We said it was an easy decision yep. for us, but it, the sample size is so small that the fact this can even be a topic of discussion without it seeming ridiculous is is great for him and and obviously the Pelicans' future. Yeah, I mean the the ceiling for him is uh, immense too. I mean uh, there were there were writers in that that Bleacher Report roundtable who went with Zion, and it wasn't. Um, it certainly wasn't an outlandish thing for them to do. What he's what he's doing is, especially as a scorer, is just ridiculous. His feel for the game, um, 
is already off the charts. And I noticed that, and I think most people probably did at Duke. Like he always knew when to cut, he knew where to cut. He, he, you know, found the ball um, in ways that it, it usually takes guys a few years to figure out right now. The only player in NBA history, or I should say since 1973, because that's when per possession data is tracked back to, the only player who averages more points per 75 possessions as a rookie was Joel Embiid. Um, his his scoring instincts and ability are just off the charts, but I think there's that added layer of being the guy who's engineering everything is just huge to me. And I I think Zion you know, has a chance to be a pretty decent playmaker like maybe there's a couple seasons down the line where he averages three four maybe even five assists um but i don't think he's ever going to be the offensive hub that luke is that the guy's already averaging basically 30 points and 10 assists a game i mean that's that's an incredible amount of offensive production and responsibility um i, I don't know who across the history of the league had that kind of production by year two uh, and it, it helps that he's playing in this era where the main guy on the team controls, you know, every aspect of every possession. Maybe there were guys earlier in history who could have done stuff like this by year two. They just played in the wrong era. Um, but it's he, he to me is clearly the top. Uh, I guess it depends on if we're still including Giannis in this discussion, but the top like young guy that you want to build around at this point. I think maybe Giannis has graduated from this discussion. Yes, he's about it, to be a two-time MVP. He's graduated. Yeah. And how old is he now? 25? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. So if we were doing like 23 and under or something like that, I think it's pretty clearly Luca. The, the other thing is, though, we could technically – there's an element of Zion is someone we've never seen before. And so maybe we're just assuming that – I think you put it perfectly – his ability to find the ball – Maybe we're assuming that he never he's never really able to branch out into what we're saying he's not going to be right now. It's tough to envision someone like him playing that type of role, but he's also just this anomaly. And so perhaps he does uh, eventually matriculate into that that type of of offensive importance. It's just right now, I don't know how you would guarantee that happening. And from all we've seen with Luka Doncic, he's leading a playoff team. And that's actually the question I wanted to ask before we get out of here, uh, but with Luca doing all he's doing and it being so valuable, not just to a team in general, but an, an actual playoff team that if they pull the right first round matchup, if it's not the Lakers, if it's not the Clippers, I'm not saying they'll win, but you could certainly imagine it being a, a hyper competitive series. Yeah, I'm actually, I've been kind of toying with this for the last week or so. I, I wonder if the Mavericks are better than people realize. And, and I was, I can't even remember what it was that I was working on, but I realized that they are like fifth in the league in SRS right now. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, and again, SRS is just point differential combined with strength of schedule. And, you know, on top of so that's a season long number, obviously they've got the, the obvious offensive production that's been talked about a lot this season. They've been even better in the last few weeks, I think, because now they're finally figuring out, um, you know, Luca and Porzingis are kind of figuring out how to play with each other. If Porzingis continues to play the way he has the last few weeks through the playoffs, um, Seth Curry keeps shooting the lights out. Tim Hardaway has been pretty good for them too. I think they're going to be a lot tougher out in the first round than people realize. Yeah. I mean, that this is a team that uh, could feasibly be peaking as the postseason just begins. And that's yeah. what makes them so dangerous. I wanted to ask you about the bottom of the Western conference playoff picture though. Just an absolute bloodbath. The only teams that I think yeah. you can safely eliminate from the eight seed are the Phoenix Suns, 
Minnesota Timberwolves and Golden State Warriors. Uh, the Pelicans are five games back, five losses back. The Spurs, You're still in on the Spurs? I, I think I actually left left the Spurs bandwagon a while ago. But they're hang, look, they're they're three losses behind the Grizzlies right now, and then the Kings and the Blazers are four losses, but they're closer in in the win column. So the Blazers are three and a half games within number eight. The Kings and the Spurs are four and the Pelicans are five. Um, I, I predicted new Orleans would actually get the spot. This was going back a couple weeks because they had at the time, the league's easiest remaining schedule. They have the third easiest remaining schedule as of right now, while the Grizzlies, uh, they have the league's second toughest schedule down the stretch. There's just been more variance in New Orleans' performance. Uh, not, you know, you can lose a game like they did to the Mavericks, and that's fine, but you need to beat a team like the Timberwolves, who they lost to yeah. on, was it Wednesday night, Tuesday night, whatever it was. That was crucial. The other thing to sort of throw in here is that the Blazers have the fourth easiest schedule in the league going forward, and then the Spurs have the eighth easiest schedule in the league going forward. So it's not like they're going to get huge benefits from there. And then all of a sudden the Kings are just hanging around. Now, I say all of a sudden, they've really just been hanging around, but their just latter half of the season rise has been huge. And so I'm wondering, I guess it's a two-part question. One, how likely is it that the Grizzlies keep this spot? Maybe because all the teams below them are sort of cannibalizing each other. And who is your pick to actually get the eighth spot? I'm going to I'm gonna preface this real quick. Um, Believe it or not, 538 still has the Pelicans playoff chance at 45%, which is the highest of this bunch for whatever that's worth. It now, has, I, It has exponentially decreased over oh, the past sure. week or so. Wasn't it yeah. up to 60%? And then what, the yeah, other day I, think, I saw it was at 50. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think it was up around 60, maybe even pushing towards 70. So it's dropped a lot. I'm sure that Timberwolves loss specifically hurt them quite a bit. Um, what this, you know, I haven't like dug down into the numbers behind this formula. Um, but it does seem to have a harder time gauging what you mentioned earlier, that there's just a lot of variance in the Pelicans' performances. Um, so it probably expects with relative confidence that the Pelicans are going to win a game, like that one against the Timberwolves, that, they, that they're just you know prone to blow, um, which is what they did. So even though they're five games back, I, I guess mathematically, they still may be the strongest one. But it, you know, in my mind, five games back in the loss column is huge with this much time to go and with multiple teams in between them and the Grizzlies. Um, I, I would like to see the Pelicans. I think that's the most entertaining matchup because one, you have Zion two you have the Anthony Davis thing, like a full series of the team that he just ditched, um, you know, making the playoffs, maybe giving them a scare in one or two games that that would be wildly entertaining to me. I, I'm going to settle on the Grizzlies. Um, they had that, they had a stretch where it looked like they were kind of falling apart and they were going to give this thing up. But now they've, they've had a nice little bounce back. I think there's a mental toughness with this team that I, and I, I'm sure plenty others just drastically underestimated going into the season. So yeah, they, they had a five game losing streak that ended on February 21, 28th. They've since come back and won three straight. They beat the Lakers uh, they beat the Hawks, which, you know, they should beat the Hawks. But the fact that they beat them by almost 40 in Atlanta is is pretty big. And then they crush the Nets in Brooklyn, too, which is the Nets are another sub-500 team, but they're a playoff team. And it's it's in Brooklyn. So Memphis, I think, has shown a ton of grit. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to do that. But, yeah, it's the grit and grain, at least. They've got guys who are growing 
within the season, like John Moran, I think just keeps getting better and better and better. Brandon Clark's good. Jonas Valanciunas has sneakily had like a really great season for them. Um, I, I think they've built themselves enough of a cushion to make it. Now there, you just mentioned how easy some of those other team schedules are going forward. The Grizzlies have a really, really tough schedule. Um, so I would, it wouldn't shock me if one of these teams overtake them. But I'm I'm at a point now where I feel like a hint of confidence that they're going to hang on. We I think speaking of someone who gives me heart palpitations when when he hits the ground or lands, yeah. John Moran. Oh, yeah. God, after missed dunks, made dunks, I heart attacks. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's been. I, this is why I think he ends up clinching the Rookie of the Year award. I'm maybe helping the Grizzlies to a playoff berth over the Pelicans is part of that, but. He's just efficient for a rookie. When you look at the types of shots yep. he's taking, how much offensive responsibility uh, he's saddled with, to have a, an above-league average effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage as a rookie with his type of role is absolutely huge. And I'm, I I agree with what you said about the Grizzlies. I still kind of feel like they're going to forfeit it. I might be a little bit higher on the Blazers now because we know Damian Lillard is back and that their their schedule is at least comparably, in, in quotes, easy to the Pelicans. Uh, but I, I feel like this, Lillard. <laughs> yeah, and so I, but I feel like the chaos does help Memphis because they just have this three and a half game lead right now. That's tough to erase in a vacuum. And then when you're talking about other teams who aren't the Blazers, you know, look, the Pelicans, they're they five thirty eight has them statistically most likely to get the eight seed relative to those other teams. But there are three squads in front of them other than the Grizzlies, and that's what makes it. So rough. This is probably yeah. something I'll flip flop on, uh, and I already have. It will be. I, I think if I had to rule out teams, I think it comes down to the Grizzlies, Blazers, and Pelicans. As much as that, That's... insofar as that helps, I wouldn't have the Kings or the Spurs in there. I still don't believe in the Kings, even though that they've played a lot better over the past month or so. I and you, maybe you convinced me, but I think they've also just played terribly enough at points where I've, I've been out on the Spurs for a little bit now. So I do think the Kings and the Spurs eventually sort of retreat out of this race. I'm with you completely. Pelicans, Blazers, and Grizzlies. It's going to come down to those three, which will be fun. I mean, three teams competing for one playoff spot, I think is going to make the end of the regular season interesting. You snuck this in there at some point. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up real quick before we get out of here. Do you think um, is rookie of the year over for you? It's over. Look, it's Zion can't play in more than 37 games right now. That's just not enough for me. And I, I, the argument I just made for John Morant, where you're looking at his efficiency, and I know that the Grizzlies offense statistically is slightly better offensively when he's off the court, but when you have a starting lineup that's going up against a lot more veteran heavy opponents in the Western Conference, the fact that he's not like this huge negative uh, and the defense has actually been better with him on the court. The other thing is that if you end up getting close to this, you know, if you're going to hover around 500, even after all the injuries you just suffered, even after all the transactions or the, the, the talent deficit that you put yourself in at the, at the trade deadline, that has to count for something. And so I, I think it's going to be pretty clearly John Moran. It's, it's not going to be unanimous though, because I think Zion has been, that good it's just his sample up against what John Morant John Morant's body of work is going to look like it just I don't I don't think it's going to be for me personally anywhere near enough to put Zion ahead of Ja I think that's totally fair I'm leaving the door open a crack if if the Pelicans make the playoffs I'm going to entertain it 
as if I have a rookie of the year vote. But um, here's the thing, though: it's rookie. I feel like that as I hiccup there, I feel like that sort of weights the trajectory of their careers by giving Zion rookie of the year this year. It's rookie of the year. And so who has been the rookie of this season? This isn't a, you know, if this was, I think Joel Embiid had a stronger case to get picked uh, during his season when he played in only 31 games than Zion Williamson actually has now. And he's on track. Let's assume he plays in more than 31 games just because there wasn't a John Morant in that year. Yeah. And Malcolm Brogdon wasn't close to what Morant's doing this season, but um, did Philadelphia even sniff playoff contention that year? And obviously Zion has a lot of really, really good teammates with the Pelicans, but he is like supercharged that team and his net rating swing is off the charts. Um, I think if they make the playoffs, he's going to be a key, key reason why I think I still lean towards John, not lean. I mean, I, I lean heavily towards John Moran. I think Zion would have to continue to play the way he has these first, whatever it is, 15, 20 games that he's played um, the rest of the way. And New Orleans would have to make the playoffs for me to even entertain it. But I'm just going to leave it open ever, ever so slightly. I think that's fair. I mean, the Pelicans have well, played about 500 basketball with him. So it's just, I'm not sure he's super char- I think Derek, when Derek Favors re-entered the rotation in mid-December, I feel like that, that was, was sort big. of the, the swing point for them. But yeah, I, I guess it's it's fair, but just, I I don't know. It would, I think the playoff berth thing is probably, if, if that's where the Pelicans get, I, I guess it would be fair to, to entertain that. All right. Um, a mid-podcast audible. Uh, we, uh, we hit the Knicks for you. Luca Zion, Stephen Curry's return. And we, we talked about the end of the Western Conference playoff picture. If you've got any, um, seething anger over our takes which seems common for us uh hit us up on twitter um as always you can find the show at hardwood knox the podcast network is at blue wire pods we encourage you to rate review and subscribe to the show uh if you haven't done that already or if you have done that already tell your friends and family to do it until next time we leave you with the shout out to benna udry and kyle anderson Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.